The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. I'm going to start a little differently today. I'm going to start off with a story that I don't typically share because it's a personal story. And sometimes when you have to relive it, you get kind of emotional and you start crying, right? So I'll never forget, I'll tell you about my first day of school here in the United States of these America, 1990. I was 10 years old. I didn't speak a word of English. None of us did. And there was this lady that was helping us. She registered us in school and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, through, we didn't have Google Translate or any of those tools back then, as you all know. So we had to use the actual dictionary uh, to kind of compile what we're trying to say. So she showed up and took me to the bus stop, which was about four or five blocks away from where we lived. And she explained to the bus driver that I don't speak any English and that on the way back, she needed to make sure that I was on the bus and that uh, I got off right here at this stop. So everything went according to plan, and I got out, and he told me to get out and all that kind of stuff, and I get out, and nobody was there. I thought that she was going to pick me up. I'm waiting on her. 10, 20 minutes goes by. Nobody's there. So then it starts raining. Well, I'm not going to stand in the rain, so I start walking. But I started walking in the wrong direction because I didn't pay attention when we were driving on how we got there. And uh, so I was walking in the wrong direction. Yeah. So I'm walking, and it's pouring, and it's, I'm soaking wet, and I do what I did best that time with that age, just start crying. So I was crying. I'm talking about bawling my eyes out. And I'm walking on the sidewalks. We didn't live in a very good neighborhood. It was downtown. And I'm walking, and... Just as Vincent said, some people are looking out the window, speaking through the curtains, but nobody's there to help me. So about an hour, about an hour of walking in the wrong directions, I hear a siren. And it's not one of those, wee, wee, it's one of those, ah, ah, you know. And I turn around and kind of look in the street, there's a police officer turning around. And he starts yelling, saying something, and you know where I come from, you don't, you don't go to the police, you run from them. They take you to jail where I come from. You meet a cop, he's taking you to jail. So I run between the houses, run away, and then I'm continuing to walk in the wrong direction. But this police officer obviously didn't give up because, you know, when you're walking and you feel like somebody's watching you, I see a cop cruiser slowly cruising down the street, and he's kind of following me. Then I stop. Now cry. Right, and he pulls up. It's not really an emotional story. It's emotional for me and not for you guys. So sorry. So he pulls up and you know says something, and he finally gets out. It's pouring. It's raining. He gets out of his car, and I'm kind of paralyzed. I'm standing there, uh, not knowing what's going to happen. So he approaches me slowly, kind of you know points his, like you know indicating not to run, <laughs> and then he comes up closer, and he did what you only appreciate when you're. Uh, when you're an adult, I guess, or when you have your own kids. And out in the rain, 
he kind of sat down and stretched out his hand. And he was waiting. And I finally put my hand into his hand. And we started walking towards the cruiser. Now, the cruiser was very dirty. I don't, I, you know, he might be saying some things I don't remember, but I, I, I could not speak. The only thing I knew exactly is no English. So as we approached the cruiser, I saw the back fender was pretty dirty with dirt, so I drew a picture of a house with my finger, and I kind of went, I don't know, you know, kind of like this. And that's also where I learned my first uh, swear word, because <laughs> I was mistaking that word for the house. But he put me in the cruiser. He gave me a, a T-shirt to wipe my face and wipe my head. And we just sat there. Then he reached into his lunchbox and gave me a Snickers bar. So finally, I ate the Snickers bar. It calmed down. And then he did something, again, you would appreciate. He drew a picture of a house on a piece of paper. And he pointed outside. I didn't know what he was doing, so what he did was he moved a couple of, drove a couple of houses down, and he pointed at the picture, pointed at me, pointed at the house, so I figured out what he was trying to do. Hey, we're going to drive around. Where's your house? So, honestly, I do not know how long it took us, hour, two hours, tops, but finally, we hit the street where it started looking familiar, and we found our house. He took me out of the car, took me by the hand, and walked over to the house, knocked on the door, and my mama answered, and boy, was I happy to be home. <laughs> so what's the point of this story? Well, the point of this story is exactly if you translate it into spiritual sense, what our text deals with today. Rescuing the lost. Rescuing those that are going in the wrong direction. And I want to tell you, if you are a born-again Christian, if you're truly a Christian, you're a member of God's search and rescue team. You are. But why is it that even though every true believer is on the team, like Vincent saying today, everybody just wants to sit around the table? Why is it that many of us rather just peek through the curtains, look, and kind of pretend we didn't see anything? Can you imagine, for example, you're lost in the woods, you finally came out, you come to the civilization, and you go to the search and rescue team, and you say, why didn't anybody look for me? And they'll say, well, it was really cold and stormy out there, and finally, you know, there was a final episode of Bachelorette, or what was that other show that Game of Thrones is on? So what I did was I just, I just prayed for you and hoped that you'd be okay. And maybe another one says, well, I didn't want to hurt your feelings, you know, and tell you that you were lost and come looking for you. Or better yet, I wasn't sure that you were really lost. I, I don't want to be judgmental. You know, for me to imply that you were actually lost, it'll be arrogant of me. Maybe I'm lost. After all, we all have our own paths and journeys. And honestly, this is not the kind of search and rescue team that I would want to see. So James tells us to do one of the most, he's ending this whole epistle on a high note. 
And he's telling us one of the most difficult things that God is going to ask us as Christians to do. We are responsible to help restore strained sinners to the truth. And friends, this task is often a very unpleasant task. Have you ever tried to help a wounded dog? You're guaranteed to get bit. It's not, a unple- it's not a pleasant task. You know, no matter how gently you might approach it, you might get bit. And maybe that's the reason most of us are afraid. But when you are successful, it's a great moment of joy. So if we're all in God's search and rescue team, we need to learn how to do the job. But first we need to understand a couple of things about the danger of drifting or backsliding, whatever you want to call it. So the first thing I want to talk about this morning is the subtle danger. This danger of drifting, the possibility of move for a Christian to move away from God. So if you open up to James 5, verses 19 to 20. Last two verses. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So the first question to the answer, who is James talking about here? Backsliding believers, or is he talking about, about those that we need to evangelize who do not know Christ? If you look at verse 19, it will indicate that James is talking about believers. He says, brethren, if anyone among you wonders from the truth. And then in verse 20, he talks about saving his soul from death. And it sounds like saving his soul from hell. So some assume that James is talking only about believers and believers cannot lose their salvation. They interpret verse 20 as some, it might refer to physical death. And that, that's quite a possibility as God disciplines for sin. Other approach it in which I believe is to be correct, is to say that James is writing to the church, but he knows that some in the church have made professions of faith, but they are not genuinely saved. And this is the overall theme, if you think about it, of James. It's those that have profession without possession. They need to be saved. And it fits with everything that he said this far. He's emphasizing that true saving faith is not just to make a decision or to say, I believe in Jesus. He's saying the saving faith results in the life of good works. In James 1.22, we read, be doers of the word, but not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see, backsliding is a very easy thing to do. You know what you do? Nothing. You do nothing. You're backsliding. In your spiritual walk, you either walk forward or you're backsliding. There's no standing still. And we've seen throughout this study that genuine faith produces works. Faith without works is dead. And I want to look at these three verses all together right away so you can see and remind you of what we already covered. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
And then in James 22, uh, 26, he says, For the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is, is dead also. You see, the correct biblical teaching of eternal security is not the person that prays to accept Jesus into his heart and he will never lose his salvation. It's not the person that makes a decision to receive Christ and he can instantly be assured that he's going to heaven no matter how he lives the rest of his life. True biblical doctrine is genuine salvation is not primarily a human decision, but it's rather a God changing the sinner's heart. There's a heart transplant that happens, raising him from spiritual death to spiritual life. And this new life that God imparts results in a new way of living. New way of living. Rather than hating God, the newborn Christian now loves God and desires to please the Lord. Rather than living for his own selfish desires, the believer yields to the God, God's will and yields to Jesus as Lord and seek, seeks to live his life for him. Now, I'm not talking again about sinless perfection, but rather the overall direction that necessarily results from a new heart and the new life. We see in clearly in 1 John 3, 3, 7 and through 9 reads this, Little children, do not no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God has manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his sin remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, when John says he cannot sin, he does not mean that it's impossible for the believer to commit sin. He will be contradicting himself. In 1 John 1.8, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And you see, the believers do sin sometimes, and sometimes in horrible ways. But the difference is when a believer sins, he is grieved and deeply troubled by his sins. He cannot go on in sin. God's Spirit convicts him. He knows that he has displeased his Lord. The believer who sins repents and turns back to the Lord. He strives daily against all this sin, this daily fleshy life. He sets up safeguards to prevent from falling into sin again. The overall direction of his life is to grow in holiness, to bear fruit for God. Do you guys remember the parable of the sower? Where some seed fell in different types of ground. One seed fell on the shallow soil that had hard, rocky layer beneath it. This seed immediately sprang up. But when the sun came up, what happened? It withered. And Jesus said that this seed represents those. Look at Luke 8.13. It says, but the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root. Who believe for a while in a time of temptation fall away. Their faith did not produce any fruit. The third seed fell among thorns. Jesus explained in Luke 8, 14, it says, Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, 
and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. And then there was another seed that fell on good soil. In Luke 8, 15, it says, But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who haven't heard the word of a noble and good heart. Do what? Keep it and bear fruit with patience. These alone represent true believers who persevere and bear fruit. So if you go back to our text here in James, James is referring to one of these last three groups. A strained believer may be a temporary one. He might be on a rocky or thorny soil. Neither type is truly saved. But how do you know which group this person falls into when you're trying to restore them? The answer is in their response to your efforts when you're trying to restore him back to the truth. If he repents and comes back to the Lord, his faith is genuine. But helping him turn back and persevere in faith and obedience, then you have saved his soul in death and covered multiple multitude of sins. So if you go back to James 5.19, it says here again, James says this person strayed and wandered from the truth. And in verse 20, he mentions error of his way. So I want to kind of simplify or show you how it's possible to stray. The straying from the truth implies that departing from the truth of gospel or some core Christian doctrine. But there's also moral deviation that's here, and that's the main focus of the phrase, the error of his ways. But you see the point that doctrinal error and sin are usually intertwined. Sometimes a person may embrace a false doctrine because he has fallen into that serious sin. Other times a person embraces some serious doctrinal error. Before long, his false doctrine opens up the door for him to embrace his sin. In 1 Peter 2.25, it says, For ye were a sheep going astray but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. We're compared to sheep. And you know, sometimes I wonder, why did God pick us as sheep? And I'm meaning this respectful way. You know, sheep are pretty dumb. Why can't we be like the lions? Now, we're compared to sheep, and the sheep have a tendency of straying off, wandering away. They don't mean to go astray, but it's a gradual process. And people seldom lose their religion by a blowout. It's usually by a slow leak. Here's a sheep, and the sheep moves over a little over here. Then it sees, oh, there's a little greener grass over here. starts nibbling here. Then, you know, it's nibbling over here and so on. And the next thing you know, the sheep, sheep is wandered away from the fold. And the Bible teaches us that's the exact tendency of God's people. Have you noticed that tendency in your heart ever? Have you noticed that there's a tendency to get away from the Lord? When you do, you have to be very, very careful. You have to stay very alert. If you don't watch out, you will wander away from the Lord. You didn't mean to neglect your Bible study. You missed it. And then what happens? The next day it's easier for you to do It's easier even the next day, and soon you don't do it at all. 
Maybe you start neglecting your prayer life. And folks, I'll tell you something about prayer. Backsliding begins when knee bending stops. I am telling you, prayer is the most powerful tool you have as a Christian. You may pray it every day. You started walking with your Lord in the morning. It might be a short prayer. might spend hours in prayer, whatever it is. But then you begin to neglect it because you're running, kind of, you know, got to get the kids to school, got to run in late to work, and you kind of neglect it. Same thing happens. Then you don't pray at all. And then you start missing any church attendance a little. You know, someone said church members like automobiles, they start missing before they quit. You start not going slowly, then you don't go at all. Then instead of sharing your personal testimony with the world, you choose not to share what God has did in your life. So after a few days of neglecting your quiet time, whatever it is, prayer life, that's where the drift begins. So when you're feeling tired and you're like, I'm too tired to pray, that is the time when you need to get up and pray. You know, a famous violinist was asked how long he practiced every day. He said, I spend 10 to 12 hours a day with my instrument. And they said, well, what would happen if you slack off? And he said, after day one, I would notice it. After two days, the conductor would notice it. After three days, the orchestra would know it. After four days, everybody would know it. So you see, this is a, such a condition, it's very dangerous. We can, we can deceive some people for a while, but we can't deceive the Lord. And we might be disciplined. We talked about that in Hebrews 12. You might be committing sins unto death, which is in 1 John 5. And you know, Acts 5. Ananias and his wife. There is such thing as sin unto death. And God disciplined, we read this for, uh, for every communion Sunday in 1 Corinthians 11.30, that many of them are asleep. But I want you to know that backsliding of any member of the church is dangerous to the church itself. Just one. Ecclesiastes 9.18 says this, Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. Do you know that? That's why it's important for the spiritual members of the church, you must step up and help the man who has wandered away. James is acknowledging the professing Christians will stray away from the truth doctrinally and morally. And when you try to respond to them, you, that's when you'll know the true condition of their heart before God. And until we seek to restore them, you won't know what kind of heart they have. What kind of soil is it? Rocky or is it good soil? Secondly, I want to look at the thing this morning is the serious duty. The serious duty. The ministry is the responsibility of restoration of all true Christians, all true believers, not just pastors, not just elders, not just deacons. It's everybody that's been truly born again. If you look at 519, it says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back. It says, My brethren, 
One turns him back. It does not say elders, right? We heard when there's some serious illness, you call for the elders of the church or pastors. It doesn't say that here. No deacon turned him back. The ministry is the responsibility of every Christian who is walking with the Lord. And Paul puts it this way in Galatians 6.1. He says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, and you who are spiritual restore such one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Spiritual means spiritually mature. Walking by the Spirit. Developing the fruit of the Spirit, which is in Galatians 5. This means that unless you're a relatively new Christian, if you, don't, if you know someone who is drifting or singing, sinning, you must go to him. You must help him or her. Help him turn back to the Lord. And if you feel inadequate to do so, then you talk to somebody that's more spiritually mature. And if needed, get the deacons or the pastors involved. But to ignore a member of the body who is straying from the truth, and you know it, is the same thing as, you know, as we talked about a rescue team sitting there watching TV while they know that somebody's out there and lost in that storm. That's not a very loving thing to do. And then the second thing I want to point out here, it's we're required not just to rescue, but to search. Searching is required because professing believers who fail or fall into sin, they seldom stay with the flock. They seldom stay with the flock. We must go after them. And if you know someone who made a profession of faith and who has dropped out of church, doesn't go anywhere now, you need to go look for them and see, find out what's wrong. Rescue is required because it's seldom that we find our way back when we're lost, right? Just like me. I was walking in the wrong direction. I didn't know where I was going. I needed direction. I had someone to guide me back. And you see, the enemy spiritually confuses your sense of direction. Or he'll give you this guilt or shame of what you've done. So you say, how can you ever come back there? How can you go back to church? They need to be assured of God's forgiveness. And if they will repent and confess their sins, they'll be restored. They also need instruction how to not to stray again. So that they don't repeat the process. They need someone who knows God and knows the way back to teach him God's ways to avoid and resist sin. And it's a serious duty to talk or help a singing, singing uh, Christian. And even though I want to point out too, it's the serious of it is, if you know that somebody is committing a sin, truly a doctrinal violation or, and things like that, and you don't act on it, do you know you will be judged? You might say, I'll look out the window and close the curtain. Not my problem. Uh -uh. If you turn to Ezekiel 3.18, it says, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. So he'll die in his sins. But his blood I'll require from your hand. 
And remember when we did the sermon of uh, listen more, talk less, calm down. Remember the story of uh, Samuel? He kept running to Eli. The Lord was speaking to him and he was thinking it was Eli. And Eli told him, uh, next time you hear it, say, Lord, your servant hears. Well, when he said that, what did, what did the Lord tell him? What was his first prophecy? You know what his first prophecy was? Let's read it together. 1 Samuel 3, 11 through 13. Then the Lord said to Samuel, now he's listening, right? And this is his first prophecy. Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. So God says, I'm going to do something big here. Everyone who's going to hear about this is going to be shocked. What is he going to do? In that day, I will perform against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. What this means is, I started Eli's house. I'm going to end Eli's house. This is his mentor. Why is he going to end his why is he going to end this house? For I have told him, I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows. Because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. So he's a prophet. His sins, sons are committing sins. He's doing nothing about it. Right? Yeah, he's going to judge the sons. But what is he doing with Eli? And if we read, Eli accepted it. So there's a subtle danger, there's serious duty of us Christians if we know it is our duty to do. And thirdly, I want to talk about the sure delight. The work of search and rescue is a difficult one. It's sometimes disheartening. It doesn't always turn out the way you would hope. But when you find that strange sinner and get him back to the, from the path of destruction, trust me, it brings great joy in, in your heart. And one of the goals I want to talk about, kind of give you three goals of uh, restoration. First of all, you're restoring the sinner to the truth. The sinner straight from the truth. So our goal is to restore him back to the truth. And in our culture today, uh, there's no such thing as absolute spiritual truth, is there? When a person strays from it, you can know it. But the truth is not subjective feeling, it's objective reality. Remember James referring to especially the truth of the gospel. In uh, James 1.18 he said, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that he might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And he uses the word truth over time. And in verse three, uh, James 3.14 he said, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. So this shows that James' truth is not just doctrinal knowledge, but also godly living. In, us, in our uh, culture, rejects the idea of absolute truth, and especially of spiritual realm. And that's one of the problems in America we're facing today as a culture. It was a time in America when we first moved, you know, moved to America. We believed we moved to a Christian country. We believed in absolutes. There was moral right. There was moral wrong. Uh, you know, we wandered away from the truth. We weren't kind of afraid of the police officers. <laughs> a lot has changed. We've gone astray from truth and intellectually in America. 
And because of that standard now, morality in our country is very low. So what's true for you is fine for you, but that's not true for me unless I happen to like it, right? It would be judgmental, arrogant for me to say you're wrong and I'm right. You can be right. I can be right. Even though we hold opposite beliefs, we can both be right. Absolutely not. Rather, you can be right, I'm right. A lot of people just settle. But in my humble but accurate opinion, the Bible asserts that there is absolute spiritual truth that saves the soul. And absolute error that damns the soul. And Paul told us in Galatians in 1.6, we see this exemplified. He says in 1 Galatians 6-9, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Which is, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you, who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And as I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. You see, it's very difficult because that's what happens in our culture today is the gospel gets perverted. It's hard to distinguish. But the truth is so important. And I'm telling you, friends, I'd rather be separated by the truth, by the truth than united in error. I'll tell you that. It's better to speak the truth that hurts than, than, than it heals, than speak falsehoods that comforts, and then, you know, we get to heaven, God's like going to tell you, I never knew you. If someone tells you the truth of Jesus Christ, they're not hurting you, but they're helping you. So when it comes to heaven, would you want someone to tell you the truth about Jesus and sin and hell and how to escape it? Would you want someone to tell you how good you are, pat you on the back and tell you that everything's okay and when you die, you end up in eternity and the result is not what you're expected? Friends, I'd rather be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. It's better to stand alone with the truth than be wrong with the multitude. That's why the Bible says the path is narrow. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul mentions this and he says, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Truth is loving. It hurts, but it's loving. The truth is there not to hurt you, but to save you. So the truth is not subjective opinion or preference. It's something objective that we must be believed if you are saved. Essential truth is the gospel. And what's the gospel? Solely, we're saved solely by God's grace through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not of the works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand and we should walk in them. Then you're saving the sinner's soul from death. And I already mentioned the 1 Corinthians uh, 11.30. It says many asleep, and it's not bye-bye sleep. Uh, John 5.16, there is sin leading to death. There's a great example of that in Acts chapter 5. 
But I think what he's meaning here, because I don't think God always takes the physical life of a sinner, of every believing sinner. James is talking about saving a soul from spiritual death. And the reason I say that, because going back to James 1.15, he says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Remember our explanation? It was kind of like kind of Adam and Eve when they sinned. They weren't physically dead. But they were spiritually dead that same day. So nature, if natural course of unchecked sins, it ends in spiritual separation from God. And James tells us in 121, we read, Therefore, lay aside all this filthiness, overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And that word is the truth. So if any person who claims to know Christ turns to sin, continues on that path, and completely refuses to change, or even to listen, it might be an indication that that person was never a true believer. In terms of 1 John chapter 3, that's what it talks about. He's relieving, he's showing us by his practice that he is not born of God. So if God uses you to help that person repent, turn back, you have saved his soul from a path of spiritual death. And then you cover multitude of sins. James, referring back to Proverbs 10-12, where it said, Hatred strifes, uh, stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. And Peter's kind of piggyback of that verse as well. And he said, Above all things, in 1 Peter 4-8, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover multitude of sins. So aren't you displaying love when you're going to a straying brother or sister? And this text also refers to not broadcasting the sins of others, but being forgiving. James picks off Psalm 32.1. says, Blessed is he whose transgressions, transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. When a sinner turns to the Lord, he forgives. The Lord forgives all sins. If a professing believer persists in sins, then you should not be comfortably assured that you have eternal security. The Bible never gives us comfort in unrepentant person. Never. Warning passages in Hebrews, you know, tells us a lot about if you say uh, faith is genuine or not. And James' intent to secondly here, uh, intent is to lead the sinner back to repentance. You will help him cover past, potential future sins from public view. And again, he also implies here, I want everybody to understand, that you must be careful not to reveal his sins farther than necessary restoration. And when I kind of talked about that, uh, discussed last Sunday, the principle of circle of confessions, right? So if it doesn't affect that person, you shouldn't do it. So how, if we're on a rescue team, how should, what do we do? If you're on a rescue team, if you're a born-again believer, one thing we can't do is go about it in the wrong way. And... That's the number one fault is we go about it in the wrong way. We must be patient, just like the police officer. He didn't give up. He followed me. He guided me home. He calmed me down. He extended his hand. He let me know he was there to help. He was patient. He shared a Snickers bar, so make sure you guys carry Snickers bars. 
He found a way to communicate with me and brought me home. But when sometimes when believers fall, other believers want to just kick them down a little bit further. Use a hammer and beat them back in line, right? Sometimes we want to be harsh. We say, well, I never expected that person to last anyhow. But we forget that they're important because Christ died for them. And we start using their Bible as a club, as I said before, versus a sword. So who should go? Who should go? If you not have knowledge of the sin or you have that relationship with that person, you're it. You should go. Second, get the facts. Don't go on hearsay, gossip. If someone tells you about somebody else's sin, ask them, did you go to them personally? It's a matter of, is it a matter of spiritual immaturity? You have to realize there's different maturity levels in church too. It might be that person just doesn't know and you're blowing it out of proportion. You just might not know. I didn't know when I first joined the church. I didn't know the entire doctrine or what we believe. And then later some deacons were like, well, Cornet, oh, okay. Explain it to them. They might not know. Thessalonians 5.14 says, First Thessalonians 5.14, Now we exhort your brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the fainted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. Maybe they're weak. Next thing I wanted to do is check your own heart. Don't go in there thinking you're high and mighty. What does the Bible say? 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him think he stands. Take heed lest he falls. What's your motive behind restoring this person back to God? To put him in his place? To prove that you're right and he's wrong or she's wrong? And make sure you're under the control of the Holy Spirit and when you're doing this, you're displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And next thing is pray. And probably I should put that as number one. Restore a strained person, you pray before you go there. You know, sometimes... You need to realize that's all is needed sometimes, is a prayer. Uh, in Luke 22, 31, 32, uh, it says this, and I think you all remember this story. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may swift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned for me, strengthen your brethren. Returned from me means that he's going to stray. And the key word here, sometimes we confuse it in King James Bible, and I like it better. It says, converted. When you're converted, saints need converted at once in a while. So we all usually think, I'm converted, that's the initial stages. It's not. You need to convert it. Prayer puts you in the right place before God, and you depended on His grace. And only then you're able to minister to the straying person. So you cannot probably talk, properly talk to men or women about God until you talk to God about men and women, friends. Especially pray for the right time and opening. Second, go directly to that person. Don't try to say that you hear or whatever and try to send somebody else. If you know it, God put it in your lap. Go. If he listens, great. If he doesn't, what does the Bible tell us as Matthew? In Matthew 18, restoring. First, do it one-on-one, doesn't listen. Get two, three more spiritual leaders, doesn't listen. Then you tell the church. But we 
tend to go to verse 17 and <laughs> from the get-go. And also importantly, from experience, use some tact. How are you going to approach it? Think it through. Do you remember when Nathan came to David when he committed a sin? Now I'm going to paraphrase this and kind of in my way, but uh, he said, David, let me tell you a story. There's this poor guy had a lamb. This rich guy owned everything. And then he stole this lamb from this poor guy and had a feast. What do you think of that? He became angry. Said death to that man. And then said, you that man. He held up a mirror of God's word for him to see. Friend, if you're sitting in your easy chair by the fire and you know there's a brother out there, a sister who's lost in the storm and gas, God asks you to inconvenience yourself, go out and rescue that brother. The greatest thing you can do is lead a soul to Jesus. That's the greatest thing you can do in your life. In Daniel 12, verse 3, it says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the fermented, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And there are multitudes of people, friends, Multitudes of people don't know why they are here. They don't know the purpose of their life. They don't know the meaning of their life. They're just wandering around. And let me tell you something. Who believes here in eternal uh, life in heaven and life in hell? So how can you sit here, know that there's eternal punishment if you die outside Jesus and you be the same? How can you do that? How can you know there's eternal punishment and sit there quietly? If you believe that, you can't stay the same. You know, I had a musician friend, and we prayed together maybe for two, three years, and he didn't know Jesus as his personal Savior. Now, the music we played was all gospel music. We played in churches and played in Russian churches, played at conferences. And one day we were practicing because between the morning service and the evening service, and I said to him, look, I just want to, don't take this the wrong way. I don't want to force you or anything, but I just want my own understanding. I said, we've been playing music together for a while. You've been singing the lyrics. You know, you heard altar calls. You heard pastors who want to repent and lots of youth coming forward. You know, I just want to, for my own personal understanding, you sitting here, has, has the Holy Spirit ever touched your heart? Or like, have you ever... Wanted to receive Jesus as your personal Savior? Just, just, I'm not pushing you. I just want to understand for my own, how can it be? There's people coming and you sitting here not coming. I just want to understand. And you know what he said to me? He said, Cornet, I've been waiting for you to tell me those words for a long time. And he accepted Christ right there. And first I was joyful. I was. But then I got to thinking. He was waiting for me. Even though there's pastors, even though there's other people preaching, even though there's other songs, he said, I was waiting for you to tell me those words. Friend, there might be somebody in this pew sitting next to you that maybe hear and those, want to hear those words from you. There's people at home, your kids, family members, maybe they're waiting for those words to hear from you, not come to church, hear our pastor, or hear, listen to this sermon. They're waiting for you. Share your personal testimony, what God's done in your life. That is the most powerful thing you can use when you're talking to people. We're all stray away. 
but your personal testimony, nobody can tell you. You know, there's doctrine. People can say this, that. They can dispute it, but nobody can dispute your personal testimony, can they? And Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Amen to that? Now, this brings us to the end of our study of James. And the major challenge of this book is not necessarily the interpretation of this book, but the application of this book. His emphasis has been spiritual maturity. And I hope this study helps you somewhat to examine our own hearts and see how mature we really are. And God's people are to be doers of the word, not hearers only. So for next two Sundays, I want to kind of make an announcement because I will be out of the pulpit as well. Uh, for the next two Sundays, Scott will bring the God's word to us. I will still be here on the 18th and the 25th for the for the vote, and we'll have QA. And if you have any questions or concerns or anything you want to ask in private, I'm always available. And then the following Sundays, uh, 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 after that, I will be out of town, and Mike Kelly will bring us God's Word. And then, if God's willing, I will return to the pulpit on September 15th. All right? Well, I want to tell you thank you all for giving me the opportunity to go through the book of James. It's been a very good experience for me and to grow spiritually myself. And let's conclude in prayer. Father, thank you so much that you've given me this opportunity and this congregation that welcomed me with open arms and be part of this family. And though we're not perfect, Father, we, we all want to worship you and we want your name to be praised and help us do that with this church. Wherever you have in store for us, let us, God, submit to your will because that's the only way we can do it. And I ask that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.